previously in the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. There's a kind of camaraderie and kinship that can only be developed through shared, ill-advised, pointless suffering. We're going to be stuck together for the next, you know, week and a half on this 40-foot island, and uh, we all have to somehow get along with each other so there's not weird animosity. Oh no, we were all, all the boaters that were on the island were there together and we were helping each other out. You know, sometimes, you know, when they, if they feed me coffee, which I'd never drink coffee, I get a little jumpy. And so they gave me a triple shot espresso this morning and a little on the edge and pushing people and they're like, dude, chill out. <laughs> you realize at the end of the day, it's about how do you make others feel? It doesn't matter anything else. And I still have a bell and catch can to, to ring. It's just not going to happen this year. Welcome back to the R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. I'm Michaela Elias. We haven't met before, but I'm an on-the-ground correspondent and researcher with the Boldly Went team, and I'm stoked to be here bringing you this report from the race to Alaska. In this episode, we'll be sharing stories about a few race teams who have really caught our attention to give you a taste of who the hell decides to do this race and a little bit of insight into why. This is episode three of a 14-part podcast series following the race to Alaska, a 750-mile quest to win $10,000 in a non-motorized, unsupported boat race through the iconic Inside Passage. In the last episode, you heard from participants about the supportive, if somewhat eccentric, race to Alaska community and the immense sense of camaraderie that's a key part to this experience. The racers endured formidable challenges in stage one of the race while crossing the Strait of Juan de Fuca, or if you're a local, you probably pronounce it as Juan de Fuca. Racers pushed through 30 plus mile an hour winds, which left their boats with varying degrees of damage and an early exit for almost all human powered vessels. Then stage two immediately started with flat waters and pleasant sailing and paddling conditions. Mother Nature is pretty finicky. Now, racers are in the midst of spending days without proper sleep, in tight quarters, eating gross food with smelly teammates on their way north to Ketchikan. Which begs the question, why would anyone want to sign up for this? What would compel someone to leave the comfort of a warm home to spend weeks commanding an engineless vessel through cold, choppy, unforgiving waters completely exposed to the elements. I'm sure for some of you listeners who are more likely to embrace discomfort and a little more eager for unpredictable adventure, this might be a dream vacation. But for a lot of people, the idea of voluntarily embarking on a journey like this must sound completely insane. So we wanted to figure out what drives these racers to attempt this expedition through figurative hell or literal high water. Well, we discovered that poor judgment may not be completely out of the picture and that most racers were excited about the prospect of adventure, we found that people had really different and interesting reasons for participating in this race. And in this episode, we'll be sharing those perspectives. Some of the teams came to race to Alaska with a strong purpose, and that includes the most well-known team in the race, Sail Like a Girl, last year's winner and the first all-women's team and monohull to win the race. By the way, 
For those of you curious listeners who aren't sailors and who don't know what a monohull is because I didn't, a monohull is a boat having one hull or a singular watertight body as opposed to two or three. It's commonly accepted that they're generally slower boats than multi-hulls, which is one reason that it was a big deal that Sail Like a Girl won last year. But that's a side note. We caught up with Lori, Anna, and Nikki, two of the members on Team Sail Like a Girl, to ask them more about how this year, beyond just racing, their goal is to chip away at that glass ceiling, or a bit more literally, seize the tiller, to change gender norms in the world of sailing. Okay, so what's your name? Lori, Anna. I'm Nikki. And you are Team Sail with a Girl, and so you guys are kind of the heartthrobs of R2AK, and that's because you won last year and everyone was so stoked about it. So going into this year's race, are you feeling pressure about that, or are you feeling excitement, or how do you feel about this year's race? I think we feel maybe this year because of how excited everyone was about us winning last year. When I say us, we neither of us were actually on the team. Yeah, that's. But that yeah. now we feel oh, yeah. like we're doing it for those people who are so excited for the bigger community, and it's it's about going out there and competing and flying the flag for women in sport and in sailing. Yeah, I think our goal is to honestly sail as hard as we can and leave absolutely nothing behind and where that puts us on the finish line we'll see but we're just gonna sail hard so neither of you guys were on the team last year and so what does that mean to you to be on this team this year oh a whole lot yeah it was an honor an absolute honor to be asked to join this team yeah and this cause yeah the same and hoping we do the girls proud who couldn't be with the team this year who were last year describe to listeners what the cause is yeah i think we can talk to that in our own ways i think every all of us have slightly different language but i think we're very much aligned and i want to say that like Jean was really careful that that was one of the most important things to pull the team together. It's like, why? Why R2AK? Why this particular team? You know, I've, we each come with our own histories. I've worked in a male-dominated industry my whole career. I've been sailing my whole life. I just love to get on top of the momentum that this team has already begun to say we can compete and we can lead in in ways that are not necessarily the same way a man leads but it's insanely effective and we're figuring that out in the corporate world and like it's really fun to translate that into athletics and teamwork in this way yeah and nikki what's the what's the cause i mean the cause is to send a message that sailing like a girl is a good thing just like throwing like a girl is a good thing or leading like a girl or being a girl is a strong thing just like it is a man it's not about anti-men it's not about pro only women everything but it's just it's just about changing our attitude to women and the thing is it's like people come up and they say oh wow an all-female team you don't hear them coming up to basically every other boat which is in fact all male and say wow an all-male team it shouldn't be the exception. It's yes. not the exception for them, so why is it the exception for us? Yeah, yeah, totally. Me. I've heard people say that you are trying to break the glass ceiling of sailing. Does it feel like you've actually broken it? Uh, <laughs> that's a long traditional glass ceiling that will exactly. take years to break. But 
we're starting to believe that we can do it and that's stage one I reckon it's not changing other people's view of women it's changing women's view of women that's well said and I think it's there's a trend in the certainly in our culture to put more women out front and to recognize the differences that we bring to the table I just are we doing it all on our own hell no are we contributing to a momentum that's out there in our own unique way just like our 2AK is about as unique as it gets I mean yeah I think I think we're contributing well good luck um, I'm excited to be able to chat with you both thank you thank you thank yeah. you very much yeah oh, that was fun <laughs> The truth is that these six women on Team Sail Like a Girl make up about a third of all the women who registered in the race to Alaska, and about half of all who made it through stage one. So we're pretty excited about what Loriana, Nikki, and the rest of their crew are doing, and we hope that they'll inspire more women to become part of the R2AK community going forward. While some teams are racing to bring awareness to a cause, and by the way, we'll detail that more in a later episode, some racers are hoping to experience a more personal transformation. In the last episode, you heard from Doug Shoup from Team Perseverance, who had just made it through the proving ground to get to Victoria. But he lost his dagger board, which is a pretty essential part for making it to Ketchikan. Doug built his own boat, and was literally still working on it the Friday before the race. Doug was pretty happy to have made it through the proving ground, but he says he still has a bell to ring and catch a can. Race boss Daniel Evans shared some background on Team Perseverance with us and the kind of preparation Doug underwent for the race. I mean, Team Perseverance, I'm saying, is one of the amazing, it's one of the reasons that we made the race, right? He was someone that heard about the race, didn't really have the experience for it, and didn't have uh, the shape for it. And we actually said, hey, no, we weren't going to accept him. Unless he did these number of things. He took his boat and he went out in the middle of winter to the Strait of Georgia, and he beat it around. He took it down to Deception Pass where currents run 13 knots and found out how it reacted in uh, the high current areas, how to eddy in and out. And he lost a bunch of weight. He trained hard. I mean, it was amazing. It changed his life. Mm -hmm. And he did it last year, wasn't able to finish, and he realized it was a bad boat choice. But he made it really far, and he said, hey, I've made a bad boat choice. I'll be back next year with a better one. He built a boat, and it did happen to break on the way across. He won't be able to go on, but I, I love what he's doing. According to Daniel, Race to Alaska exists precisely because of stories like Doug's. People who are inspired by the race, have persevered to get there, and are truly dedicated to completing this kind of adventure. While some racers want to win, others just have the goal of making it to the end. And then for some, the end isn't really the goal. They're mostly here to enjoy the scenery along the way. John Guider from team You Either Do Stuff or You Don't says he's here as an artist and poet, not a racer. And his goal is to really just appreciate the natural beauty in this corner of the world. Here's our conversation with John. Okay, could I, um, could I just ask you your name, where you're from, and what your team name is? My name is John Guider from Nashville, Tennessee, and my team name is you either do stuff or you don't. <laughs> you either do stuff or you don't. I like that. Why'd you pick the team name? It was a favorite saying of my mentor, my art professor, Don Evans at Vanderbilt, and he sort of discarded art as something to become famous with. It was just something you did, and you either did it or you didn't. And, and he sort of, I sort of kept that thought throughout my career. 
Okay, nice. So we've established, you went to, you, you took smart classes at Vanderbilt. Let's just get in a little bit into your origin story. How'd you get into sailing originally? I've always been a sailor. I learned to sail at summer camp when I was 14 and owned a few small sailboats. But after a really successful career as an advertising photographer, I, I just decided that I didn't like the redundancy and I wanted to do things that were more unique to my spirit. So uh, in 2003, without really any canoeing or little camping experience, I put a canoe in the creek that ran through my farm in Williamson County, Tennessee, and took it all the way down the Mississippi to New Orleans. It was about 1,200 miles in three months. And I just fell in love with it. I was in nature. I didn't listen to the news. I got to be self-reliant. And I lived a life where automobiles and things are not important. And I was a survivor. So the following year, I decided to complete the course. I went up to Lake Itasca in Minnesota and paddled all the way down the Mississippi to uh, Cairo on the Ohio where I started. And I wrote a book and had some museum shows and just was encouraged to keep going. So in the spirit of doing things I'd never done before, I built my own boat and it was a 14-foot scary designed by John Harris of Chesapeake Light Craft. And I did the Great Loop in it, which is a 6,500-mile circumnavigation of the East Coast and the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River once again. I found out about the race through a friend, and I researched it on the Internet. And what I liked about it was not the fact that it was a race, but there was some support. They give you a tracker, they know where you are. And having all my experience on the East Coast, I thought this might be an opportunity to experience the West Coast. And 2017, I came out and contacted a very nasty cold bronchitis, and it held me back to where I knew I couldn't finish in the 28 days. and. The benefit of that was that it made me mad. I uh, started working out more, I ate much more healthy, and even at 70, I'm stronger and healthier than I was maybe 10 or 20 years ago. So I decided to come back, but I'm coming back as an artist and a poet, not as a racer. And if I make it to catch, you can't find. But if I see something beautiful along the way, I am damn gonna stop and make this picture and remember it for the rest of my life. And that's my challenge, that we're only on this planet for a short time and I'm going to make the best of it. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> I love that. That, is a, that was a really lovely descriptor of how you ended up here. Yeah, is there anything else you're hoping to get out of this experience? I'll just leave it at that. Well, it also comes down to mitigating fears and self-reliance. Yesterday was probably the most dangerous crossing I ever did in my life, even though I've got 10,000 water miles behind me. They were six-foot waves. I encountered three cargo vessels. Um, I filled with water a number of times, and yet I went on. 
And to do something like that, it releases one's inhibitions. And so that is incredible. It's just incredible. So it's not a winning, it's a personal satisfaction and it's achieving something that 10 years ago I would have been scared shitless to do and now I did it and it makes me feel that life is wonderful and worth going on. I think it's really inspiring that you're out here at 72 as you mentioned doing this. I never would have guessed that you're 70 but it's inspiring to know that you're 70 out here doing these things that still scare you and still pushing through this. We really can't think of a better way to experience the beauty of the area than through Race to Alaska. So we're really looking forward to learning about what's going to catch John's eye and seeing some of his pictures and poems from the journey. Even though everyone's trying to make it from Port Townsend to Ketchikan, their journey and their reasons for embarking on this path are pretty different. We've discovered that some teams are driven by many factors a larger purpose, race logistics, boat mechanics, and many are seeking personal growth experiences. Still, for some, the reasons for racing have yet to become clear. If you do finish when you get there, what is that gonna mean to you? Well, I think there's a couple of goals. Charmaine and a friend of hers, Julie, are driving up to Ketchikan to go have a look at the place, and they are there, I can't remember exact dates, but they're leaving about 14 days after the start which I'm not sure I can do 14 days. So that's one thing I want to aim for, is try to get there at that time. And what's it going to mean? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I can't say how to shrug. It's just one of those things, yeah. It may seem crazy to think that people who are entering such a long race aren't really counting on reaching the finish. But we heard this idea more than once on the docks. Benjamin from Team Ziska, Sail Like a Ludite, Describe feeling similarly. I'm going to go this direction this time, but what will getting to Ketchikan mean to you? It's a really far off goal at this point. It's so distant. It's hard to even think about reaching the end because, you know, it's 710 miles away from here in Victoria. So I can't even think that far ahead and through all those miles. So for me, I'm just going to take it day by day and little landmark by little landmark. And speaking of Team Ziska, Sail Like a Ludite, they deserve the spotlight for a minute because of the story they're spinning around this entire adventure, including refurbishing their antique boat, Ziska, which Odin details here. She was originally built as a racing yacht in 1903 in England by a couple of brothers who were building prawning boats that were basically the same design except for more like working and they were so sought after because they were fast enough to work against the tides and stuff. So they decided to make a racing yacht. And so it raced for a while. And then it, in the 90s, someone traded like a little 21-foot boat for Ziska. He was 19 years old. He did all the restoration on her and then sailed her was it 25,000 miles yep. around the Atlantic, single-handing Ziska, which is pretty crazy. The crew on Ziska all have their own goals and reasons for wanting to race to Alaska. Benjamin may be taking it day by day, but 16-year-old Odin, who you just heard describing Ziska, has his sights set on another goal. 
Finishing for me means that I'm the youngest person to have ever finished the race, so I have some pretty extreme goals. And a good part of this trip is going to be scouting it out for next year as well, so really paying attention to the land around us and the waterways that we're going through so that when I'm skippering next year, I'll be able to have a clear mind and know what I'm doing. And no one on the boat has the same sense of purpose and accomplishment as Jay, one of the two people who's invested countless hours into refurbishing Ziska. Jay, I want to hear about how you're feeling with having restored this boat recently and taking it on an adventure like this. I'm excited, I guess, firstly. Yeah, because I never get to see what the boats do after like they're gone. And I also get to check all my work and see what I can do better next time or differently. Do you feel like your heart is here? It is. Ziska has kind of like taken over my life for the last year and a half. And so, yeah, there's a lot of connection between me and this boat. And sometimes I like try and not think about it because it makes my eyes feel funny. But uh... when asked about what getting the Ketchikan means to Jay, he said. <clears throat> so getting the Ketchikan means that um get to like sleep uh firstly and the part that i'm most excited about is the trip home where we'll be going on the outside and i think that zisco will really really shine out there instead of having to like fiddle around on the inside and like row and, and all that fun stuff we can just set sails and go and that's the part, that's what I'm looking forward to most about this race. This is all kind of, you got to get up there in order to sail back and have that fun. So in this episode, I've shared various racer viewpoints about why they're embarking on this 750-mile journey. But strangely enough, the $10,000 cash prize never entered the conversation. That's enough money to buy the elephant in the room. So we had to ask about it at least once. This is what Mots from Team Angry Beaver, who have a real chance of winning, said. Um, yeah, so are you going to win the 10000 Of course. <laughs> going to pay back all the, pay all the bills when we get back. I'm leaving it at that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> no, no, nothing more needed. So maybe some people have their eye on the prize. And the way the race trackers have been showing, there has been a real race for it this year. But the thing that most racers have agreed on is that having a good time is one of the most important goals. Oh, this is my idea of a really good time. That's it. This is my vacation time and this is fun for me. That's Katie and Drew from Team Razzle Dazzle, speaking for the rest of the R2AK participants. Katie has three finishes under her belt and Drew too. And what they didn't say, but already know, is that those in this race are getting ready to face some serious challenges. But what are those challenges? And how will the racers deal with them? We'll talk about those in the next episode on June 13th. That's it for today's R2AK Daily Fix by Boldly Went. Thanks for sharing the adventure with us. Huge thanks to Race to Alaska for bringing this crazy adventure into the world and all the crazy adventurers who are trying it and who are fodder for this podcast. Other thanks for this podcast are attributed to Uncruised, Northwest Maritime Center, 
Lorianna Kaplan and Nicola Henderson from Sail Like a Girl, Doug Shoup from Perseverance, race boss Daniel Evans, John Guider from You Either Do Stuff or You Don't, Stuart Sugden from Three-Legged Cat, Jay Odin Benjamin from Team Ziska Sail Like a Ludite, Moths of Team Angry Beavers, Katie Stewart and Drew Smith from Razzle Dazzle, Tim and Angel Mathis, co-writers and interviewers. This episode is produced by Boldly Way. Also to women sailors, artists, taking it day by day, 100-year-old refurbished boats, $10,000, finding meaning, and having fun. If you're still listening, thanks. Get all the daily details about the race to Alaska at r2ak.com. Get additional R2AK content and reporting from our website or link to the regular weekly Boldly Went podcast featuring the brief and true adventure stories by outdoorists of all kinds at boldlywentadventures.com. Follow us both on Instagram and Facebook at Race to Alaska and at Boldly Went Adventures. I'm Michaela, proudly bringing you this podcast with the Race to Alaska. Ignite your adventure. Thank you.